0: Welcome to Bone to Pick, I am Michael Davis and we are coming to you today from beautiful sunny Los Angeles, California and I am absolutely thrilled to be interviewing the great iconic Mr. Bill Watrous this afternoon. Bill is simply stated probably one of the greatest trombone players in the history of the instrument. He is a true virtuoso in every sense of the word. Uh, He has recorded over 25 CDs as a solo artist. He's won a myriad of awards including Downbeat Readers Poll, Downbeat Critics Poll. Uh, he's in, literally on hundreds and hundreds of uh, recordings of other artists, a couple that really jump out at, to me, a great solo he played on a Claire Fisher record that I've always really loved, and great work with Milton Nascimento, uh, just a ton of incredible work uh, throughout the years. Uh, he's been a dominant force on the New York scene, and then in the early 70s became a dominant force out here in Los Angeles, California. And just before we kick off the interview, I wanted to say my own little personal story, uh, I was a I knew about Bill, of course, when I was starting the trombone, and uh, my, I got my driver's license in San Jose, California, and the first records that I went and bought, uh, that I drove myself to the record store, back when there were record stores, uh, was Bill Watrous, Manhattan Wildlife Refuge, and Maynard Ferguson, Chameleon. I took them home, and uh, of course I put Bill's on first because I was a trombone player, a budding trombone player, and I remember getting to his fourth floor walk-up cadenza, and my jaw just dropped and 40 years later it still drops when i hear it it's one of the most amazing cadenzas you've ever heard for you young folks out there if you if you're not familiar with it uh go to youtube and check it out it's it will blow your mind and it still does uh, even all these years later so first of all bill thank you so much for taking time uh, yeah it's our pleasure it's uh what what a wonderful opportunity here we look forward to talking about your extraordinary career and your life in music um, maybe we can start, you know, start kind of at the beginning. Um, you grew up in Connecticut, and mm-hmm. I know your father was also a trombone player. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about some of those, um, you know, just those early times in your life and what drew you to the trombone. I'm, I'm assuming your dad had probably a lot to do with that. Oh,
1: yeah. My dad had, I would say, about four or five trombones around the house. Uh, the best one he had was a Super Olds. That was the one he played regularly. And he had a couple of others. He had a, an Old King and then a Busher in I think, a Reynolds, Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but they were all around, and I would get home back from school, first grade, and I would get into all of the horns, except for the olds, he kept that, and Mm -hmm. I would mix them all up, you know, and get the slides in the wrong place, and get peanut butter and Bosco all (laughs) over everything, you know. For those of you who don't know what Bosco is, uh, you know what Comet Cleanser is, right? (laughs) right? Well, they were just terrible, you know. And he'd come and find it. And oddly enough, he would not give me attitude about that. Mm. It's the olds that he was guarding. He had a super olds. It was a a really nice horn for the time, you know. Mm, mm -hmm. But that's what got me involved in playing the trombone, and I never took a lesson. I just picked horns up and started playing. I used to listen to him practice around the house, you know. And I would hear the pretty sound he got and uh, the, the phrasing, and things he did, and he had a a piano player that he knew named Wilda Mahoney, which I didn't know was actually his mistress. My mother knew, but I didn't. And he used used to bring her a little uh, electric piano, a terrible little instrument, Mm. one of the early ones, and they would play around the house, you know. And I used to lay there and just listen to this and think, gee, that sounds good. And every Christmas, he would play over on the Connecticut State Farm for Women. This was a woman's prison that was over. Wow. He was the laundry manager mm. over there. Mm-hmm. And every Christmas, he would go up and play Oh uh, Holy Night and one of the Ave Marias. And I would look at some of these hard-nosed prisoners there who would stand there and cry. And I was just a little kid. I says, what the devil are they crying about? <laughs> I don't you know, Because when you're that age... You don't know. You don't get it, right? You know? right. So, so that's what I remember all about that. And I just do remember playing the horn. He finally broke down and got me a trombone. Hmm. It was a Henry Diston, D-I-S-T-E-N. Wow. They don't. They. They don't even make trombones. They made silverware. And during the Second World War, um, brass was on short supply. They used mm-hmm. it for mm-hmm. other things. You know. And this one made it, this was heavy. It had all kinds of writing all over the bill. Mother, our country, love it or leave it. Uh, uh, and it weighed about 24 pounds. <laughs> Just heavy. And the slide was pathetic. <laughs> I still had it when I went to, to uh, my first year in high school. And it had, it, whoever had, you had the horn before, uh, used jeweler's rouge to clean the slide. And he used to go, <laughs> and the other trombone players in the band would go, hey, watchers, grind me a you know, <laughs> And That
0: went over great. You know, so. Well, it's amazing that you, uh, I mean, you're, some, you're one of the smoothest players of all time. It's amazing that's what you started on, that uh, you had yeah. to endure that to get to, uh, to passive.
1: Yeah, but I finally, I finally inherited his super olds. He got an old's ambassador. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm, sure. Terrible horn. Mm. I mean, it really, and he bought a new Olds Ambassador and loved it and gave me the Super. Mm. And wow. I was thoroughly impressed with that, you know. And uh, uh, I, I mean, I loved the way it played. Mm-hmm. And I kept playing it. I played it all the way through until the time I was uh, uh, in New York when I first got there. And I took it out on the road with Kay Winding mm. you know. And finally, they bullied me into playing a King 3B which they were all playing. Mm-hmm. So Winden gave me one of his King 3Bs, and I played that for a while, and, but I found out that the overtone series in the first position, high B flat on up, was all flat. And so no matter how far in I put the tuning slide, it was still flat. Uh-huh. So what I wound up doing is learning all of my alternate positions playing this thing. Mm-hmm. And I played it out on the road for years with him. And... Uh, Oh, what a character. Winding was one of the greats of all time. Yeah. Later on, I'll tell you some stories about
0: him. Okay. Moment. Well, you know, that's a perfect segue into maybe talking about your, the beginning of your, your career really started taking off in the 60s and you were doing all kinds of stuff working with Maynard Ferguson and your time with Woody mm-hmm. Herman and yep. Quincy Jones and, and Kay right. Winding. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe you could just talk about that time in your life and, the, and maybe right. some of those, some of the memories that you have of
1: those uh, professional experiences. They were fascinating. You know, the Kay Winding uh, band, the four trombones, that was interesting, you know, to go, because everything that we played was a four-trombone arrangement of big band charts. Mm. So we mm-hmm. played everything, mm-hmm. you know. I didn't realize how hard they were until about 10 years ago when we did a reunion. And I started playing, I like, oh my God, did we actually play, play, <laughs> <laughs> play these things? Yeah, really did, you know. Who were but, the other
0: uh, members in, in Kay's band at that time? Uh, Peter Vavona. Oh, yeah, sure. Where is he now? He's teaching down at, at, uh, in Arizona, in, uh, no, I think northern Arizona. If remember, you have
1: probably. a phone number on him, I'd love to I'll, have uh, that. I'll
0: track that down. Because
1: yeah. I need to call him okay. uh, sometime. He yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> was a great trombone player. Mm-hmm. I loved him very much. And then Peter Phillips was the bass trombone player. Oh, okay. And then there was me and Kay. And... Uh, I got some hysterical memories from traveling with that band. <laughs> I bet. That's good. Amazing. How did uh, how, you find your time
0: with Woody? Did you uh, enjoy the time? I on, loved on that Woody.
1: Journey? I loved him very much. It, mm-hmm. That was one of the last uh, road gigs that I that I took. Mm-hmm. And while I was out <clears throat> on there, I... Now, I'll, let me preface this a little bit. I Before I had actually done that gig while I was out there, I was... Mm-hmm sat in my hotel room and i was kind of a you know like a party guy i was drinking then and mm-hmm. having a good time you know like everybody did at that time getting nowhere and i was in one of these moves i was actually sitting in a hotel room and i was in tears i said dear lord i says i'm doing something wrong whatever it is that i'm doing wrong i'll stop doing it i said but Can you give me some kind of sign as to what my life is, what direction my life is going as this is not happening? Three days later, I get a call to do the Merv Griffin show. Bob Brookmar is leaving, Mm -hmm. so I took his chair. I mean, I didn't take his job. I took his chair Mm -hmm. Mm because he was so wonderful, you know. Mm. And uh, I said, thank you very much. (laughs) And it was my last drink. Wow my last drink interesting i said okay i get it wow i'm going to be a good boy now i wasn't a good boy in other areas but i was a good boy there well that's that's a pretty important one i
0: mean good yeah. for you that uh, you made that shift well you brought up the merv Griffin show. that was actually the next question i wanted to ask you about and so, you were there from 1965, to 1968, something like that? Yeah. Uh, right. and, and how was that then? So, that was kind of like your first main TV gig, stage? I would say, uh, Danny
1: Stiles was the first trumpet player on there, and Bill Berry mm. was, the, was the other trumpet player. I was the only trombone. So, what I wound up doing is uh, taking other parts and adding, you know, playing a, a saxophone part that wasn't played and adding that to what the Brad. And I would come up with parts and things, you know, that. Would work to add to that uh, ensemble, you know. Uh, and Merv, you know, you know, God bless him man, never really did any research on people going on the show. He would just go on, they'd come on, and he would wing it, you know. And of course, you know, people that really had something upstairs would really, you know, turn him over. You yeah. know, Merv didn't really. Have it all, you know, straight. No, later on, Dick Cavett was different. Mm, mm-hmm. That that came later. That show came later, and that was a great band. Mm. You know, unlike the Griffin Band, which is Mort Lindsey was the conductor and the piano player. I did something to him one time. The uh, we had a, a like a a pipe that ran across us, you know, over top of the piano, and uh, and I used to sit. And squirt this pipe. No, no, I squirt the piano, when he wasn't there, and there was water all over. And Merv is looking at this and looking up at this pipe, you know. And one day, when I came into rehearsal, Merv is yelling at the at the uh, uh, the guy who does all of that work. There's there's a leak coming out of this pipe, and I want you to open that up and find. And the guy said, Hey. There's not been any water through there in 15 years. Okay, so How just the same. It's dripping on my piano, and I want you to do it. So the guy gets his ladder, and he climbs up and force it, he forces this thing open, and a couple of drops of water come down on the piano. And said, says, see? You know, and I went, oh, thank you, thank you again, Lord. You know. So uh, but I didn't do that anymore. You know, it was was a hard show to do because there was really all kinds of silly stuff going on. Oh, one night I uh, was on camera, we were all on camera, and I was a pipe smoker in those days. Okay. I had this big, I was smoking this pipe up there, and I, was, I had this jar, next big jar for trash, and I'm dumping the, the uh, you know, cleaning the pipe off, and all of a sudden I'm smelling smoke. And I'm looking down, and I had set stuff in this thing on fire. And I mean it's starting to blaze up. So now and the audience is starting to pick up on it, you know. Oh, this is right during the right show. Right during the show. So oh, I take my book and I put it over top of it to shut it down. Uh-huh. All that happened is tons of smoke came up from there all over the place, and the audience started absolutely freaking out. I mean, there's smoke all, all and Merv's going, Without looking, is that Watford's <laughs> over there doing this? And they all ratted on me right there, you know. So, oh, God, okay. So they stopped the show, came over and dragged this thing away, put water on it and all, you know. And Merv never let me up. You know, he was on me all, all the time. He was just, you know, friendly-like, you know. Uh-huh. But uh, <laughs> I just remember some of the guests he had you know, were just, you know. I don't know why he chose them to even show up on nas- national TV, but they did. You know. <laughs> he was an interesting guy, too,
0: right, in terms of uh, he had a knack for making money in uh, projects and everything. I read uh, a few things about him. What? In addition to being a talk show host, he had all kinds of oh. production companies. Oh, in yeah.
1: sh- in, uh, and TV and shows, games. little game shows and things right, like that. Right, right. And he, I remember buying that Mercedes I was telling you about, this uh, mm-hmm. 71 uh, 280 SEL. Now I had it, and... Uh, I'm now driving it over and parking it in back, you know, next to his coupe that he had. Hmm. And Mary says, Watchers, I saw your, uh, your sedan out there, your Mercedes sedan. Nice. You'll notice it isn't as expensive a car as mine, you know. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, that's par for the course.
0: <laughs> hey, you're Trombone playing, you got a Mercedes. Game over. <laughs> you, yeah. you would. Can we shift gears a little bit and talk about sure. your time? Um, this is more in the, kind of in the rock and roll vein, but you uh, were part of a very famous rock band called Ten Wheel Drive. Oh, gee. And, um, and for <laughs> those of you who don't know, the Ten Wheel Drive was a was a horn, would you say horn-dominated band, right? The horns were very I would prevalent say, and, yeah, uh, and yeah. uh, featured a singer named... Uh, Ganya Ravan. Ganyar Ravan, who I understand was compared a lot to Janis
1: Joplin well, coming thought, in that kind of, We used to call her the White Janis Joplin. <laughs> you know?
0: But what's interesting about the band is when you look at the, the uh, um, list of players, the alumni from the band, it's an amazing group of musicians, from Don yeah. Gronick on piano, sure. to Danny Styles, Dave Liebman, yep. Tom Malone, uh, of yep. course yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that experience playing in that band at that uh, at that point in your career?
1: It was the first hardcore rock that I had played. That's really what I thought it was at the time. You know, mm-hmm. They had a tune called The Eye of the Needle, which was sort of a sort of a hit for them, semi-hit. And uh, we, did, we played at the Fillmore East one time. And the sound man had it all set up so that uh, while we were playing, the sound would go like this from side to side. And people were going, because <laughs> they were all ripped out on something. And, uh, and we finished a set in there. And this kid come up, came up the bandstand. And he looks over the moon and says, wow you guys have got music so you're reading. You're super professionals. <laughs> you <know.
0: laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, here's the question that I've been dying to uh, ask you and wanted to just hear your, as many uh, memories and thoughts as All you right. have about this. But in the mid-'70s, you recorded two extremely important and seminal uh, reco- records for Columbia Records, the first one being Manhattan Wildlife Refuge and then right. the second one, the Tiger of San Pedro. Um, as you, I'm sure you know, they, the in addition to myself, um, those records had a huge impact on so many trombone players. And Do you know really... there
1: were two records that went before that? Oh, really? That nobody there... knows anything about. Really? I did not know that. Yeah. There was one, In Love Again, which is hmm. nothing but a string section. Dick Berkey wrote all the charts oh, on yeah. that. yeah, okay. And I did... Uh, da, 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 and all those uh really syrupy ballads. Uh-huh, I mean it was uh-huh. really well written. Berkey just wrote tremendous stuff on there, right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that went down. And uh-huh. then there was another one after that. Love themes for the underground, the establishment and other subcultures not yet known. <laughs> Honest to God. I have that rolls right it. off the tongue. <laughs> well, that was done Bloody, for that's sp- great. And that uh came out, and Walter Rame, I don't know if he's still in New York or not. Yeah, I don't know that name. A composer that he actually talked me into do, having him do that because I was doing some, some jingles and some record dates and things for him in New York. And I said, okay, so he did this and did it. It was like uh, voices, uh, vibes, uh, drums, bass, and all kinds of other things. I remember that because Marilyn Jackson, who was a friend of mine at the time, I knew in New York what's ahead of the singers on this date and the writing for the singers was so absolutely ridiculous that she wound up in there readjusting all of that so it were I still have a copy of this mm, wow you know you can't you can't get these anywhere yeah
0: yeah you know um well then so following that had maybe talk about how your deal with Columbia came about and then I know John Hammond produced John Hammond, a very famous yeah. producer p- produced those records and also just putting the big band together at that time, just sure. how, how that uh, came about and I'll what that was you, like. you, Willard
1: Alexander was a major part of this thing. Willard that that right. had known me for a long time and I had come to clubs I was playing with rhythm sections. And he heard the band. And he said, look, he says, I'm going to try to get you on Columbia Records. you know." Wow. And I said, really? How, how interesting. You know? <laughs> so sure enough, he worked it out with John Hammond, where John came and heard the band. And John decided to record the band. So uh, I figured now, let's see, I can't, I can't, I try, I got to make this sound like it's not a jazz band. Because Maynard Ferguson had a pretty hot band at the time. Mm -hmm. And my game was to try to fall into that slot somehow. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking right. I didn't really picture myself the way that I do now and did later. Mm So we, I had a whole bunch of people, uh, including John Barber, who I haven't seen in years, right, right. you know, uh, write some charts and uh, um, um, I got one of Bill Berry's charts and a few things just gathered up to put together, and I wrote a couple of my own. So we went in and recorded that, and then uh, started traveling around with the band. I lost a lot of money <laughs> doing that, you know. And uh, then we got into doing a second album, and that was uh, I think it was uh, Space Available. Hmm. Is that the second one? I think Manhattan Wildlife Refuge. And then uh, Tiger San Pedro. Tiger San Pedro. Right, that's right, right, right. Yeah. And
0: in fact, that w- in fact Tiger San Pedro was a John LaBarber
1: chart, I think, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And he thought it was humorous because there are no tigers in San Pedro. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But we did that, and after it had gotten released, you know, um, I remember making a, going to John's office, you know, and John would sit at his desk and he says, "Uh, Bill, the album is not doing very well, you know. (laughs) know, He'd give me all kinds of things to feel great about, you know, (laughs) I'd come out of there wanting to die, you know, and while I was out on the road on another trip with the band, I got the message from him that Columbia Records had discovered Bruce Springsteen. They were canceling my contract with Columbia. I was really depressed mm. when I heard that. That yeah. was the end of it, you know. So that's so much for Columbia Records. That yeah, time.
0: that's unfortunate. And unfortunately, it's also not a unique story for jazz artists, uh, even yeah. at your level and stature. Yeah. Um, let me just ask you specifically about the four-floor walk of condensa, like, uh how that Was that something you just came up with on the fly? Had you got it worked out a little bit I in advance? I had written that
1: tune, you know, and sat down. And in those days, my thought process was for some reason to have a damn cadenza in the middle of the tune mm-hmm. instead of at the end where it belongs, mm-hmm. which it should have been. Mm. And... Uh, so what we did, dee, 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 and I come in with a, a triple high E flat, you know, which I haven't played in years. <laughs> <laughs> I have never played, but go ahead. <laughs> you no, know, you know, coming down, I worked my way down and played all kinds of... All through this thing, with all this stuff... And I didn't really play any ideas, they were all just... You know, not to bring anybody down who's listening to this, but it was all just things. And when I listen to them now, I go, well, yeah, technically, yeah, but musically, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But at the, for the time, it was interesting because nobody else was doing that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So what I did is simply turned it all loose. I just said, what the heck, I'm going to play as many notes as I possibly can. And it was in the middle of the tune. So when we did this live... Danny Stiles would play, after I got through, after the cadenza, the place would be screaming with applause and stuff. And by the time Danny came in, the crowd was already burned out. Mm-hmm. So here's a cadenza already done. Instead of putting it at the end of the tune, where it should have been, I, like a dummy, had it in the middle of the tune. I, I think about that every huh. so often. And go, Oh, man.
0: I always, I actually thought just kind of the opposite. I thought it was kind of cool, because the, like you're saying, it's typically, it would be at the end, but... Uh, and, I mean, the fact that you could play at that level, it, it, it commanded
1: attention, yeah. you know, in the middle of the church. I thought it was good. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I say, I wasn't thinking in, that, in any direction but that at the time, you know. There are other tunes I did cadenzas on that were a hundred times more interesting than that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that really worked out right, you know. Um, but, you know, I was a young guy, and then I was just, you know, Wanted to show off all the speed I could come up with. Sure,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. well, like I said at the beginning, it had made such an impact on all of us, so we uh, we all appreciate the fact that you did it. Um, in the '70s, you moved out here to Los Angeles. Um, you were obviously doing extremely well in New York uh, in the recording scene and and as a solo artist. Um, what made you make the move out here? And then, now that you look back and, and you were such a dominant force in both places. How would you compare the two uh, kind of musical centers?
1: Okay, let me start at the top of this thing. Uh, I had made a couple of trips to Los Angeles you know, to play at Dante's. That was mm-hmm. one of the big jazz clubs. And uh, while I was here the first time, I met the, the girl that I'm married to now, Mary Ann. She was trying to help Carrie Leverett collect all of the, uh, you know, there were a thousand people in her, it seemed like. And she was helping him out, and I saw her. I was love on first sight. I just went, oh, okay, this is it. It was so much it that I had a friend in New York named George Trafon, who was a big womanizer, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like I was before I met her. And I sold him my black book for 150 bucks. (laughs) I said, this is it. I'm done. I'm done. That's the end of all of this. I met the one. This is Mm -hmm. it, you know. So... So I did Dante's and then I went back to New York and all and of course while I was back there I had informed my now ex-wife that I never wanted to be in the same room with her again let alone be married to her, you know. <laughs> That's <a nice. laughs> So now I'm headed back to Los Angeles again to play Dante's again. Now I get in Dante's, you know, and I'm on the mic, I play a set and I get in and I talk, ladies and gentlemen, I am so thrilled and impressed with Los Angeles. This is a place I would love to be. In fact, I am planning to pack up all of my stuff and move here and stay and live here personally. And the place was full of musicians. Not a sound did I hear. Nothing. And I'm standing on the stand and everybody its like it's full of... And all of a sudden I hear from back of the... <laughs> over on the bar says, don't look now, but I think I just heard Dick Nash vomit into his (laughs) (laughs) soup," which was just a joke, because Dick Nash is one of the greats of all time, Yeah, and he didn't have to worry about anybody coming anywhere or doing anything. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. It was Barney Liddell that said that. He was on the uh, Lawrence Welk Band.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good trombone player, too. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so once you got out to L.A., and, and, and I know when we were driving over here this afternoon, you were saying how you miss New York quite a bit, and of course, you, you're, you're an East Coast guy to begin with, but how do you, when you look at it now, uh, how would you compare the two the two places
1: from the musical perspective? It's different now. It was a whole different story. Back then, New York was the apple. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, that to me, it was, for years and years, I really did well there. But at the time that I chose to come out here, there was another reason too. Pat Williams had called me and said, I'm working like crazy out here. If you'd get out here, of course, I had already decided to come, I'll get you a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, at, th- at that time, the work was dying in, in New York. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, uh, the uh, any movie calls were out somewhere else. Uh, jingles? was down the toilet. Mm -hmm. A lot of the recording studios had pretty much folded up, and anybody who was working at all did a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. And I thought at the time, you know, I would rather uh, be boiled in oil and do a Broadway show and sit (laughs) in a pit, because I'm slightly claustrophobic. Okay. That never worked for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Ever since Frank Rehack went and barfed in my lap, That'll cure you. That any, really, that, uh, that, that interest he, in shows, right? We were doing a, a ballet, a French ballet with Zizi Jeanmaire, and Frank is suddenly goes <laughs> all over the front of me. And in those <sighs> days, they had one suit, and that was it. And I had to sit there, <laughs> sit there living with this for the rest of the show. I was just, I was bummed out. <laughs> yeah, I said, really, I what's wrong? what what you what you do that for? He said, Hey. Don't you dig boss vom man <laughs> oh, <nice>. oh. Cancel.
0: <laughs> for those of you and I bet there are probably quite a few younger players who don't know who Frank Rehack is he's a name worth looking up and he yes. did have uh, unfortunate uh, drug issues and uh, I'm sure that was, was probably at that time but uh, um, an amazing player we, oh, you worked was with him a lot so Great. it was uh, quite a, I had the good fortune of when I was in uh, high school playing in the Bay Bones with Billy Robinson up in San Francisco and and Billy would always have great people come in, yourself, uh-huh. of yeah. course. And, uh, and Frank Rehack would ha- host some rehearsals at Synanon, the drug uh, right, rehab right. place. So I'd go up there, my mom probably uh-huh. put the fear of God in her. I'm driving by myself sure. up to the Synanon to <laughs> have rehearsals. But, uh, but it, it, I, yeah. I,
1: I was always amazed at Frank Rehack, how, what a great player he was. Oh, he was wonderful. You know, he, stra- he actually straightened out. When he went to Synanon, he stayed there long enough to become the director of the whole thing. Right. He was in charge of the entire thing. I guess recently, I guess in the last, I don't know how many years ago, they finally got in trouble and are canceled. There is no yeah. synonym oh, anywhere now. So. Huh. Interesting. Frank called me two days before he died hmm. and uh, just said he's, you know, I'm going to be leaving soon, you know. Oh, he be, Yeah, wrong. I won't be able to talk to you and... Uh, it's just been great playing with you and uh, God bless you and all that, you know.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's kind of beautiful in a certain kind. imagine if you could say goodbye and thank you to people that are so meaningful to yeah, you. I think you know, he did amazing. that all around. I think he covered everybody. Yeah. That's amazing. That's great. Bill, in addition to the, the two records you did on Columbia, then you've gone on to record over 25 CDs as a, as a solo artist. Um, do you have a couple of favorites that jump out at you the, looking back on, uh, on, yeah. on, on that body of work?
1: My all-time favorite was A Time for Love that I did with all of Johnny Mandel's Mm -hmm. tunes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, wonderful Sammy Nestercarl. Yeah. Oh, God. What a gift to humanity that guy is. Yeah, yeah. Greatest, you know. I did one before that called uh, 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 Bonafide. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which was that. pretty good, too. Bonafide yeah. was a little more open and stretched out. Mm-hmm. Did a lot of long solos and a bunch of things on there. And I wrote a couple of things and whistled on one of the tunes. And, right, you know, yeah. I yeah. forgot about your uh, whistling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The best, one of the uh, 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 unforgettable on that Bonafide is one of mm-hmm. the best things I've ever done in my entire life. That's worth listening to. Because mm-hmm. I wrote French horn lines that I played behind that. Mm. It sounded like a a mini French horn section. Mm-hmm. You know. That's cool. Very cool. I always thought that Time for Love record was
0: spectacular, and that tune, yeah. of course, Johnny Mandel is such a great uh, composer and arranger and, and former trombone player, um, mm-hmm. but that tune just seemed like it went
1: perfectly with you, like it was just a great match. Yeah, it worked. And that, that, was, mm-hmm. uh, that chart is just amazing that uh, Sammy wrote. You know? You know, he's one of the greats of all time, Sammy Nestico. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh. Absolutely. Well, that kind
0: of leads us nicely into, uh, I like to just throw out some names, I call it name association, and have you just give us a couple quick thoughts about some of these uh, amazing players that you've worked with and are very good friends with over the years. And uh, let me start with the late, great Carl Fontana.
1: Now, if you want to talk about the one that I consider the all-time greatest jazz trombone player that ever lived, it's him. Mm. Oh, Carl was... uh, I did many gigs with him. We did a, we did a CD together mm-hmm. that was available. It was done for mm-hmm. the Jap- a Japanese label. I don't think you can get it now, mm-hmm. but uh, that turned out really well. You know, uh, Carl was one of the most humorous individuals I have ever known. There's a joke he told me that I can't tell. I don't think I can. <laughs> you know, you could give it a shot. If oh, I'll it. give it a shot. You know? <laughs> we were on a plane. And we were going off to somewhere, and he was telling me about this story about this, this accountant that got in serious trouble with his taxes. And he's sitting, you know, clicking and punching. He's looking. He says, he's, he says I'm $75,000 in a hole. I don't know what to do. And his friend is with him looking at him. What are you going to do? <clears throat> and in those days, there was a wrestler known as the pretzel. And he, you, if you beat him, you'd get 50,000 bucks. He said, I've got to wrestle a pretzel. And his friend says, You're crazy. He, he, he ties everybody in knots until so they can't move. You, can't, you don't have a chance. He said, I can't help it. I've got to have money. I've got to wrestle a pretzel. And his friend says, Man, you're crazy. So the day comes, and he goes to the <laughs> arena, <clears throat> and he climbs, and here's the pretzel standing this huge, monstrous, gigantic individual. And he gets in, his friend says, I can't watch this, you know. So the crowd is cheering and all this stuff is going on. And finally, screaming, the crowd is just going crazy. He opens his eyes and the referee is holding his friend's hand up in the air. Now they're, and the pretzel is laying on the ground in a ball. Now they're on their way to the dressing room. His friend says, what did you do? That guy can kill anybody. What did you do? He said, well, he says, he says, I've, he grabbed me and he started tying me in all kinds of knots. My, you know, my legs and back. He said, my head. And he said, and I just couldn't look. He says, and everything was going on. I didn't know where to go. And finally, I opened my eyes and I saw this big pair of balls staring me right in the face. So I bit him. And you know what? It's amazing the amount of energy a guy gets from biting himself in the balls. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was wondering what so, direction that I was going to go at the end. You there, know now <laughs> yeah. that probably isn't going to make it to the to the. Uh, that's, that's, but that's I think, a great story. He told me that that's story. That. I
1: giggled all the way to where we were going. I think we were going to uh, to uh, to New Orleans uh, to play there. That's know?
0: great. Well, continuing along with the great <laughs> umpers, uh one of our we we're talking about him previously. And you did a lot of work with
1: him uh, in New York the great Irby Green. No, there is. As, as a trombone player goes, there, in my estimation, is the greatest individual that ever played the trombone, the greatest mm-hmm. trombone player I ever mm-hmm. heard. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, when I first found him, when I was in the Navy, I was on a carrier ranger, and we docked in Yakuska, Japan. And I got off, and I went on liberty. It was, I guess it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm walking down the main street of this little Japanese town. And there's a bar it had a musician's lawyer on the front and in Japanese. So I thought, wait, interesting. So I walked in, and there's two people in there. There's a bar guy and then a waitress. And I went and sat down. And this place had the first stereo I ever saw with two speakers over here. And she walks over and sees my uniform. She sees a musician's lawyer and says, Ah, you musician, What you pray? I says, I play the trombone. Ah, you played trombone. Ever hear Herbie Glean? He's smooth. We got leckered. <laughs> and so 25 yen later, she goes and puts on Let's Face the Music and Dance. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I lost it. Yeah. I had never heard anything like it. And I'm sitting there listening to this magnificent trombone playing with a great band. Yeah. I could hear Al Cohn in the band. I knew he was there, you know, because... I'm listening to this and I'm going, holy mackerel, back to the drawing board, you know. <laughs> and I stayed there from mid-afternoon until midnight. Nobody else came in. And I had that whole record, those are those round things with a hole in the middle, <laughs> played 26 times.
0: I can believe it. That's the impact Derby had. Uh, on, on, and I
1: couldn't believe it. Finally, the shore patrol came. And gathered me up and took me back to the uh, to the carrier ranger, and they carried me aboard. You know, uh, and I don't remember anything until the next morning when I woke up with the most absolutely unbelievable hangover any human being has ever had. I got up and went to the ship store and found Let's Face the Music and Dance with Japanese subtitles. I still have it. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Yeah,
1: that's great. Well, continuing with
0: another trombone too. <laughs> Uh, played in, on your uh, Manhattan Wildlife Refuge band. Um, and I, I have it's sad that he, he's uh, passed away now, but, and I always thought he was pretty underrated when you listened to oh, yeah. how great he played, but but the, the late, great
1: Wayne Andre. He was amazing. I was very close with Wayne. We used to get on the phone once or twice a week and just talk about stuff. You mm-hmm. Know. Mm-hmm. Wayne was a great curmudgeon. If there was anything, if they were doing a session... And he knew that something for the on the contracting end of things wasn't going right. He would call it up. Mm-hmm. He would go for him, you know, right yeah. away, you know. And uh, and oh, I thought he was an absolutely great trombone player and a sensational individual. Yeah, all around.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he always. Obviously, I didn't have as much association as you did, but I know whenever I was on, I was the beneficiary of some mm-hmm. of him going to bat for the musicians. Yeah. He was yeah. very much about doing the right
1: thing. Oh yeah, for, yeah. For the... He was on Windings Band. He was uh, I was his chair that I took when I joined Kay's band. Oh okay. Because Wayne had left it to, to be busy in New York, and mm-hmm. of course then I was out on the road with Kay. You
0: know? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And one of my favorites, and I know you had a close association with him, unfortunately very tragic ending, but uh, Frank
1: Rosolino. Oh, Frankie, man. What a guy, you know. I mean, he, let me tell you one thing I noticed always about Frank. Frank was fearless. There was nothing he wouldn't do mm-hmm. in life or any other way. He was just, he was just a, a wild guy. And when he played, you know, one of the things I knew about Fontana, most of what he played was in the key of... Uh, C, F, B-flat, or E-flat at the most. He never went beyond that. Rosalina would play things in the key of D, Mm. A, Mm -hmm. B, and it didn't care to him where he was. And he would play, I got a recording of him playing, uh, I forget the name of the tune, but he plays approximately 26 choruses on this thing. And every one is crazy. (laughs) I mean, he's just mad, he was a madman. Yeah. All over the place. You just would really just... Uh, have, you, have you got the CD where he plays on? Um, a video that, that he's... Uh, oh, yes, yes, I yeah, know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: But it, it always amazed me. I mean, my dad took me here in, uh, in the Bay Area um, when I was in high school. It amazed me the economy of movement he had. For what he was playing. I mean, oh, yeah. yourself as
1: well, but it was so, everything was just right. He almost looked like he was a statue. I mean, He, he was, used, the you know. f- like uh, Fontana and, my, and myself and others, just the first four positions. Everything else is, you don't have to go unless you play a low C or a B natural. Right. Or a low right. D flat or that. Everything is up here. Yeah. You know. That's I'll amazing. tell you what, a story about him. We were at Dick Gibson's jazz party. Sure. In Colorado. And uh, we had played a set in the afternoon, I guess it was about 3 o'clock, downstairs, the three of us, me and Carl and Frank. And now we went to Rosalina's room, and the three of us started playing a blues, one chorus at a time, around in a circle, and someone would play a bass line. And we went around, and we started at 4.15, and at 5 o'clock, we were still playing that blues. (laughs) Now, boom, 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 boom on the door. And Rosalina goes over, opens the door, and this guy's stand. I'm from security. We've had a complaint about you playing in the room could could you kindly cease yes. and desist? And Rosalina goes, <laughs> <laughs> Slam, he slams the door on him. And the guy didn't know what's hit him. We go back, we're playing again. He comes back again. An hour later, now it's almost 6 o'clock, and Russell does the same thing. And that's the last we saw of this guy. He said, I'm not going back to that room for love or money. I'm not ever going, those guys are crazy. (laughs) That's a great story. God, he was a a marvelous guy.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that story. That's a great one. Um, Bill, as we kind of wind down a little bit, um, as you look back on your extraordinary career, um, is there anything you'd still like to do that you might have missed uh, up to this point, or you...
1: God, I think there's a lot of things that I'd like to do. You know, um, I would like to do uh, I would like to do a new CD pretty soon. You know, mm-hmm. I've got mm-hmm. things in collection to do. I've even got tunes picked out. I have just recently done one with Gary Irwin, who has a big band out here. Okay, and I've done some solo things with him and his band for. I've done two projects with him already, and we have just done another one.
0: Oh, nice!
1: In which I played a whole bunch of. uh, uh, One of the ones was "Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry." Oh, beautiful! Which really came out good. I mean, I was listening to it the other night. Just I listened through it just to make sure that it's, you know, safe for release. (laughs) I'm I'm confident it is.
0: (laughs) I think it it is too.
1: The gentle rain is on there too. Yeah.
0: Oh, beautiful. things like that yeah I'd love to hear that point well that's great I mean I knew even before I asked the question I knew that you're still uh, you know forging ahead uh, as, as a solo artist like, uh, yeah so. I, I, thank God <laughs> that's great um, Bill as we, I, I usually ask our artists we're fortunate to talk to um, for the young people that are viewing this if you know the music business has changed so much in your mm-hmm. lifetime and it's it's certainly going to change a lot going forward Um if, if there was a young trombonist out there who was thinking about trying to make this his life's work, um, what, uh, what what bit of advice would you
1: offer to them? I tell them don't quit your day job. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what's what. Uh, I, I'm going to go back about about 12 years, maybe 15 years. I'm jogging down in Riverside Park, down near me, and I see two young. Black dudes carrying a boom box about this big, and it's going, boom, chick, kabooka boom, chick, boom, chick, kaboom, boom, chick, people, chick, chick, people, who need people, chick, kabooka boom, how the love gives people, chick, people in the world, chick, kaboom, boom, chick, chilling. Mm. And I went, oh, oh, I think we're in deep trouble. Mm. And what has happened was rap has really taken over the music business. Mm-hmm. Taken it over. Mm-hmm. It's a humongous uh, financial success.
0: Yeah, no question about you that. Know? Yeah. And
1: mm-hmm. that's really what's going on. So if you look over the whole scene, a lot of jazz artists uh, are literally, like I say, taking day jobs, you know, mm-hmm. ducking out of this the whole scene. Mm-hmm. You know, unless they are really uh, active within their business, what they do, like you are, for instance, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. staying on top of things and doing uh, uh, other things uh, within the music business to keep active. Mm -hmm. That is the secret, is to keep active, Mm -hmm. to find things to do uh, that are going to benefit you musically, emotionally, personally, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I think for you, too, I mean, you look at your career, and, you know, certainly the times are different, but, you know, you could have easily just been... A side musician and been and yeah. done all the studio work and the TV yeah. jobs and everything, but you, you know, had the initiative to to become a great solo artist. So it's I had the to. same same idea, you know. Um. You see,
1: I fouled out with the biggest contractor here in Los Angeles, Sandy De Crescent, mm. big time. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you what I said. I'll tell you after we get off of this thing. Okay. <laughs> but it was not cool of me to do it, regardless of the fact that I had reason to do it and the situation in which I did it. Uh, sort of aim me at that Mm -hmm. but what i did was so uncool that i will never be forgiven for what i said Mm -hmm. so anyway so i had to get out and do other things and do studio work because that was the end of my studio career right there yeah
0: well i'm sorry to hear that but on the on the positive side of that we all get to hear you play the stuff we'd like to hear you play so so that's an amazing thing bill listen thank you once again for taking time out today to come down and uh and mostly, thanks for all the inspiration from all of us trombone players okay. out there. You've you've uh, given us a, a huge gift, and uh, and uh, we really thank you for that. So oh, bless you all. Thank you kindly. Hey, thanks right. for having thank, me. Too. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you all for joining us, and we will see you next time on Bone to Pick.